Scripture today comes from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should offer for, if, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Good morning, everybody. Good to have you here today. We got a good many of our folks gone for the holiday weekend, I'm sure, and others who are out sick, but got a lot of folks here, and we have visitors and folks back who've been ill and traveling, and so we're always good, uh, always glad to see everybody here. Today we're continuing our series, um, sermon series, based on the words of 1 Peter 3.15 that were just read here, uh, the middle verse in that paragraph, where Peter calls his readers to be prepared to make a defense for their gospel hope um, and so that's what we want to continue today, another lesson in this series. Um, always being prepared to make a defense. If you're using the NIV, it'll say, uh, use the word answer for defense. Uh, other versions use the word explain, be ready to explain. All of those are fair translations. It's this Greek word apologia from which we get apologetics and apologist and all those sorts of words. But what we want to focus on this morning that this command from Peter to his readers was not given to them in a vacuum, right? This isn't just some dry, uh, you know, classroom uh, floating in space. This is a, these are people, flesh and blood people who live in a world, a particular world, a particular place and time. There's a culture um, that's alive. There's a society around them. There are certain conventions and pressures and expectations and all the kinds of things that people on earth always have. They live, namely, in the Roman Empire. Um, I don't remember who is the, the Caesar when Peter is writing. Uh, I, I don't recall if it's Nero or you know, Caligula or Claudius or which one. But uh, this is first century Roman Empire times. And so this is not something that they're going to hear in a vacuum. They're going to hear it with their world around them. Um, and the very fact that Peter had to tell them to do this, to be prepared to make a defense, to give an answer, to offer up an, art, an articulate explanation to anyone who inquires about this hope that is, has come to define them and give them their identity in Jesus, tells us that not everyone in their society found Christianity convincing, right? Otherwise, you're not going to have to defend it to anybody. They're gonna, we all agree. That, that's tacit uh, you know, admission that it's not always going to be the most congenial idea. Maybe not even a comprehensible idea to many people. You know that people in the Roman Empire often referred to Christians as atheists because they had no visible God. It just looked like they don't have a God. They're just atheists. There are all sorts of misconceptions about uh, people being cannibals because they ate the body of the Lord every week you know, in a supper called communion. Um, things like that, all sorts of misconceptions about Christianity. So he's saying, don't just leave that there. In your particular world, give a defense. Be able to explain it. Well, we modern readers of this text aren't in a social or political vacuum either. So it raises the question, if and when our society seems uninterested or ambivalent or even adversarial, to the gospel of Jesus? How should we respond? I think this text is very relevant to that question. And this happens to be the weekend of July 4th, um, which is celebrated by Americans as the birthday of the United States uh, almost 250 years ago. And so many of our citizens are, are, are celebrating that. They're reflecting on the meaning of our nation and its history, the promise and the challenges, the ways that we've done exceptional things in our history and fallen short of exceptional um, ideals in many cases, but at any rate, remembering that and what it means to us. And so today, I want to look at this, this question again of offering up a defense of the gospel, but particularly in the, in the concrete context of living in an earthly nation. We're in a kingdom of the world, you might say. Uh, it's not a kingdom, it's a democracy, but 
Um, if we're using New Testament language, you know, Revelation talks about the kingdoms of the earth versus the kingdom of God, that sort of thing. We, we live in one of those. The Roman Empire was one, we're another. There have been many uh, between the two uh, periods. And so what does it mean to defend the gospel in an earthly or worldly uh, country? All right? That's what I want to think about first. How, how should we see our relationship to our nation? How should we see, conceptualize our relationship as Christians in our earthly country. And Peter's short answer is simply to say that we are exiles. I know that y'all talked about this on Wednesday night. I'm sure that went well because Nick was leading it. We were not able to, to get on. I, there was something wrong with the link and um, tried two or three times. So I don't, I don't know what you, I hope I don't just go completely opposite of what Nick, <laughs> you know, you come here on Wednesday night's one thing, come here Sunday's another thing. Um, I doubt it, just knowing Nick and I and our brains. But, um, uh, exiles. That's Peter's short answer. We are exiles. What are we talking about? Well, look at chapter 1, verse 1. Very first statement, the greeting, you know, the, the, the salutation uh, in, the, in the letter's opening is Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and then his addressees. Those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. This is the ESV. You may uh, say something like scattering or something like that. Um, it's the Greek word diaspora. So dispersion it is literally just a, a, a transliteration. Uh, it's nothing more than that. It's putting English letters, pretty much, on, uh, on, a, on a Greek word. Um, and it was a kind of technical term. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the scriptures of, of, of the first century, right? They don't have all these other letters yet. They're getting them. But basically, the Bible for the early Christians was the Old Testament. And then any new scripture that they get piecemeal over the period of decades, um, so at any given moment, you could be in a church, a New Testament church, and have the, the law, the prophets, and the writings, what we call the Old Testament, and a letter or two, you know, something like that. Maybe none of that yet, in, in, in fact. Um, but the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is the one Paul and Jesus quote uh, almost always, is, which is called the Septuagint, from a couple centuries before the first century, um, use the word dispersion, uh, diaspora, as a technical term for Jews who didn't live in Palestine anymore. Over the ages, the Jews had been dispersed all to the four winds, and this was a kind of technical term. He's saying the exiles of the dispersion. And, you know, there's some debate on this, but uh, I think uh, pr pretty close to a consensus, at least this is my opinion, my take on this, that what Peter is doing here is he's wanting Christians in these particular provinces in the Roman Empire, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, Turkey, basically, um, parts of Turkey, modern-day Turkey. He wants these Christians to understand their experience in society through the lens of the Jewish diaspora. It's kind of a metaphor. I don't think he's writing just the Jews. He's saying, you Christians are like the Jews, God's people, who throughout time have often been exiles. You're exiles. You're the dispersed. You're not really in your true and ultimate homeland. And it's not the only place in 1 Peter where he calls them exiles. Over in chapter 2, verses 9 through 12, he says to Christians, you are a chosen race. God's race is Christians, which is neither Jew nor Greek. Right? It's all races, but that's his race. His nation is this royal priesthood of Christians, followers of Jesus. They're the people for God's own possession to proclaim the excellencies of God who called them out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now look at verse 11. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners or pilgrims and exiles, foreigners. Your version may use the word foreigner. That's what the word for exile means. You don't, you don't really, you're not really of the place where you're living. You're a resident alien. A sojourner, an exile, a foreigner, and he says, I want you, though, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against the soul and keep your conduct among the Gentiles or the nations honorable. So Peter sees Christians and wants them to think of themselves as exiles. And over at the end of the book, in 1 Peter 5, 13, he says that in the closing part of the book, he says, as New Testament letter writers often do, they're saying, I'm sending you my greetings from so-and-so, so-and-so says, hey, you know, and all, all that. She who is at Babylon... Now, they're not literally in Babylon. Most scholars, I've not read any who don't think this, is saying this is just a reference to Rome. So in other words, a metaphorical, Rome is the new Babylon. It's the pagan empire of the day. 
And somebody at, at wherever Peter is writing, Rome likely, that he calls Babylon, is sending the greetings. She could be some woman. It's more likely he's referring to the church there and sort of feminizing the church. Either way, he's using Babylon uh, as a kind of metaphor for living as a diaspora, a people displaced, a people who are exiled from their truest home. And so I want to raise the question with you, because really there's a sense in which we're all exiles. I think that's what Peter's saying. Christians sort of think of themselves that way. Has there ever been a time in biblical history, you might think of an exception or two, but they would be exceptions to a rule, which is a firmly established rule pretty much, that the people of God were almost always in some kind of exile. I mean, if you think about it, there, first of all, there's the literal captivity to Babylon, the, the basis for this metaphor. Uh, that's, you know, uh, you, you can feel uh, the displacement, the dislocation, the, the, the angst, the, the longing, aching emptiness of a people who are far from the home God gave them. Psalm 137, by the waters of Babylon, this is, you know, captivity language, there we sat down and wept. When we remembered our home, when we remembered Zion, on the willows there we hung up our lyres. For there our captors, these pagan overlords, were requiring of us songs, almost you know, treating them like a trained monkey in a show. Our tormentors required of us mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. And then they say in response, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How can we as exiles, as these displaced persons, homeless people, in a sense, sing the Lord's songs with joy and satisfaction? So there is the literal captivity, the literal exile to Babylon, right? In the 7th and 6th centuries B.C. and so on. But before that, thousands of Jews had been dispersed to the four winds by the Assyrian army, by the Assyrian empire, another pagan empire. After that, they have to deal with the Medo-Persian Empire. And then the Greek Empire, the Macedonian Greek Empire, and then the Roman Empire. When in the Bible are the people of God not in exile? It's the exception. I mean, as readers of the Bible, when we first meet the first, you know, sort of the main characters of the Bible, the Old Testament, at least the human main, I'd say the main character of the Bible is God, but the, the main human characters in the Bible the Israelites, when we meet them, they're already an exiled people. They're like spawned in exile, right? They're a slave nation. They're the labor force for the pagan empire of Egypt, the foremost empire of that day. And then Yahweh, when he gives them his law, his instruction, his Torah, repeatedly tells them never to forget that they were sojourners, that they were foreigners, they were exiles in someone else's land. He wants that to be an ongoing part of their consciousness, of their identity, even when they get their promised land. They're still reading that law every Sabbath. Remember, you were immigrants, you were sojourners, you were exiles. Don't forget that. And then Peter applies this language, the language of dispersion, diaspora, exile, to the followers of Jesus. We are people who live in a kind of cosmic homelessness as long as we are in this world. Given that, what should we Christians, this is really why I'm talking about this right now, what, what should be our expectations of our earthly country? I, I kind of want to do a little expectation control here. And I want the Bible to be what sets the parameters for those controls. When we talk about being biblical people, uh, that just rolls off the tongue. Boy, that's a two-edged sword. It's not just for them out there, it's for us. And if we're going to let the Bible control our expectations, what then should we expect as Christians, as people of the book, of an earthly nation, Shouldn't we be careful how much hope we place in our earthly nation or its leaders or its politics or, or its power or even its principles? And somebody might object, somebody might say, you know, but this is a Christian country. 
So I hear what you're saying, but this is, a, this is a, an exceptional nation. This is a Christian country. First of all, you won't, if you think that and are saying that in your mind, you will not be the first person. Americans aren't the first people who've said that. At all. The British were saying that like crazy in the 1800s. And it's been said over and over and over. Uh, the Roman Empire, the late Roman Empire after Constantine was saying something like that. All right? And is that even, what, what are we to make of this claim, we're a Christian country? Let me just say, the, 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 the true answer to that is kind of yes and no. It's not a neat, simple thing. Not a binary answer. First of all, there, there's no part of our nation's founding that officially recognized Christianity or the Bible. There's no reference to any Bible verse at all or to the name of Jesus anywhere in the foundational documents. It's not in the Declaration, it's not in the Bill of Rights, it's not in the Constitution, etc. Now, were there Christians, believers, in the, in the time of the founding? Of course. But the documents don't say that. They talk about God and nature's God in a kind of deist way, which is honestly what the sort of first string founders were mostly. Now, there's some exceptions, but the big names mostly were deist in that time. But, but there was a strong sort of biblical, you know, evangelical, for, I hate, that's a bad word, loaded with too much stuff now, can't use that anymore. It means all kinds of things that it didn't mean 10 years ago. But anyway, Bible-believing Christian people, people who would have said, I'm a Christian because of the Bible, I take the Bible to be the Word of God, and so on, there was a, a strong element of that in, in, in the decades prior to and during the nation's founding. And so Christian influence, Judeo-Christian ideas have had a huge role in American history and its culture and so on. So in a sense, when somebody says it's a Christian nation, they got a point, though it's not what people often mean when they think sort of officially or something like that. And I personally am very thankful for the impact Christian ethics and Christian uh, you know, consciousness, uh, moral sense has had on our nation's uh, history. Um, you, you can't really, you know, it's connected to parts of the anti-slavery movement. Um, the civil rights movement doesn't make any sense at all without Christianity. I mean, it's, it came from the black church, literally. That's why the leaders are all reverend whoever. Um, so it, a lot of ideas about the sanctity of life, um, a lot of reform movements came out of Christian impulses. That's just a fact. Any, Atheist historians note that, who are historians of religion. That's not debatable, really. So there's a strong Christian element, if, if we just mean in terms of influence and what people believed. On the other hand, if we're going to take the, this idea, well, we're a Christian nation, so we don't have to worry about thinking critically about our relationship to this earthly nation. That's not complicated at all. So the exile idea is sort of like just me being pedantic or something. What about those times... And there's plenty of these as well throughout American history when Christianity, I'm going to put huge air quotes around the word right now because I don't mean this is the Bible or what Jesus intended or what following Jesus looks like, but it's what Christians often did. And that is there have been plenty of times in American history when what passed for Christianity, quote unquote, behaved pretty much like worldly powers do. It wasn't much difference at all. In fact, it was often in cahoots with just kind of a bald power that oppressed people. And other than the name Christ or Christian, it had little resemblance to Jesus Christ. And you know what? When you, when you go down that path, the result can start looking and feeling a lot like exile, a lot like captivity, a lot like oppression, at least for some people groups. Let me give you an example of this. In the book of Judges, if we were to put the timeline, our, our, our church's timeline we've been using back on the screen, Judges happens during the period of the land of milk and honey. Judges isn't the exile. I know there bad things happen. They had a cycle of captivity. That's not the cuffs. The cuffs is the exile period. We've got to remember that's a timeline, not a conceptual. Here's the conceptual things. That, it's a timeline. So the, the handcuffs represent the period of exile after the kingdom divided kingdom and they go into Babylon. The judges period, even though they have period of freedom and then slavery and freedom and then oppression over and over and over again, actually is the, the land of milk and honey time. They go in, they conquer the land and that pretty much happens right after that. And here's my point. 
even though Israel has received their own homeland and now can control their own destiny, right? We're not exiles, we got our land. That didn't mean they'd figured out how to thrive as peoples or as a, as a civilization. Their own behavior leads them into a kind of de facto exile. They can't get out of their own way. King Solomon, we want a king. God says, okay. He warns them. They don't listen. And you realize that when Solomon is, is king, his, his administration, his rule, his tenure is described in almost the exact language of Pharaoh from whom they'd come. There's almost no chance the writer of Kings isn't trying to get us to think about that. It's almost described exactly. Multiplies horses. He even goes to Egypt to get the horses. He takes, makes slaves of his own people and all kinds of things. So my point is for all the good Christian influence on American history, quote-unquote Christianity has also been invoked in support of injustice and oppression. When genocide was happening to Native Americans, often Bible verses were quoted. People said divine providence has allowed us to wipe out these heathens or pagans, that kind of thing. Routine. I'm not going to go into that right now, but if you're not convinced, sidebar, i got a lot of quotes for you. There's just legions of these. What about race and slavery? America's practice of race-based slavery, the slave trade, selling people's babies out of their arms to Mississippi or Louisiana plantations or Alabama plantations or something like that. Routine for decades. And it sometimes took the eyes of a slave to see these kinds of injustices and how Christianity married to the American institution of slavery and other forms of abuse brought untold suffering to Christians. It was exile for them. So Frederick Douglass, pictured right here, cool looking dude. I think he's got a really epic face. I, don't, I didn't put him up there because of his face. Though, by the way, sidebar, I can't resist every now and then a sidebar. He was the second most photographed person in the 19th century after General Custer, which that fact alone makes me want to launch into like, what a, what a microcosm. Anyway, he was asked to speak. Remember, he, he's an ex-slave. He was a slave in Maryland, had several different plantations and owners, escaped, even though it was illegal to learn to read, not only learn to read, but learn to write like an angel. Uh, that's, there's a reason his autobiography is assigned in almost American, every American history class. He was asked to speak on the occasion of the 4th of July. I don't remember where. I think up, maybe upstate New York or something like that. It was in 1852. And so he begins his address by saying this. What have I, ex-slave, or those I represent, to do with your national independence? Are the great principles of political freedom and of natural justice embodied in that Declaration of Independence extended to us? And then he continues and talks about the role of the church. It's a long speech. I'm just jumping into this part about the church. I want us to think critically about what happens when Christianity gets all bound up in politics and the American government, or any nation's government. What kind of stuff can happen? If we just uncritically accept that, because right now it's our guys, or whatever. He says this, but the church of this country is not only indifferent to the wrongs of the slave, 1852, it actually takes sides with the oppressors. In case you don't know, tons of pro-slavery argumentation came from Christian ministers. Princeton Seminary in New Jersey was just a, it, it was a factory of pro-slavery polemics, apologetics. Sermons, books, tracts, all over the, bought all over the South. Anyway, he says the church has made itself the bul bulwark, you know, the, the, the wall defending American slavery, the shield of American slave hunters, a religion for oppressors, tyrants, man-stealers, and thugs. It is not that, he quotes James 1.27, pure and undefiled religion, which is from above, and which is first, James 3, pure peaceable, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. He says, that's not the American church right now. That's not what American Christianity is doing in 1852. Instead, it's a religion which favors the rich against the poor, which exalts the proud above the humble, which divides mankind into two classes, tyrants and slaves, which says to the man in chains, stay there. 
and to the oppressors, oppress on. It makes God a respecter of persons, denies his fatherhood of the race, and tramples in the dust the great truth of the brotherhood of man. And if that makes us uncomfortable, ask yourself why. I will leave it, leave it right there. Why would that make anybody uncomfortable? If they're, if they're into Jesus more than whatever's passing for their present nation. Where's your real country? We've got to think critically, always, about that possibility of making an idol of our nation, or our country, or our patriotism, so that we uncritically look at what it's doing. We're going to hold it to its own ideals better if we're coming at it from the ethics of Jesus. So, think about that. What's our relationship with our nation? And I say all of this simply to caution us against expecting too much of what is essentially a worldly nation at the end of the day. Kingdoms of the world, even the best of them, my opinion off the record is that ours is one of the best of them. I love it. I'm thankful for all the blessings of it. I love traveling elsewhere and seeing how other people skin the cat. That's a horrible thing to say. Uh, get rid of that one. Um, I need like a Arkansas to modern America, like, what do you, what'd you call that? Like a translation book. You know, even, even if it's the best country you can think of, best principles, best ideals, it, it cannot be relied upon as a human kingdom to ensure human thriving, to execute faithfully the will of God. Now let me change gears a bit, but not too much, by asking why did 1 Peter, just ask you to speculate with me for a minute, why, why is 1 Peter, the letter, the epistle of 1 Peter, which is largely focused on disciples of Jesus suffering for their faith during the Babylon of their day, which is the Roman Empire, why did that get included in the New Testament canon? We know there were other things written. Paul talks about another letter to Corinth that isn't in, the, in our Bible. It wasn't intended to be. It's not a mistake. He, he wrote a lot of things. It wasn't like everything he wrote becomes, you know, a grocery list isn't in here, you know. He goes to the market, to the Agora, and buys some, you know, chickpeas and olive oil. That's not in here. So why did 1 Peter make it? It's for people in the Roman Empire. Millions of Christians since then have lived elsewhere. We don't live in the Roman Empire. We're not suffering at the hands of, of a Nero or a Caligula or some local uh, procurator appointed by then. There must be something in terms of the themes of 1 Peter that are relevant beyond that time and place. Something about suffering for your faith that's potentially relevant for all Christians. And so that brings up our next question as we think about defending the gospel in an earthly country. And I want you to think now about the question, whom or what should we fear? Whom or what do we fear, if, if we're honest? So we're going to raise the question um, along those lines, uh, the question of persecution. What does Peter say about persecution? Well, to net it out, he says a lot of things, because again, the whole letter is about suffering uh, for Christ and doing it in the right way, not the wrong way. But if you could net out what Peter's saying about persecution, it would be something along these lines. At least this is how I, I, I read it. He would say it's not automatic, but it is definitely possible. Why do I say that? Well, that's kind of the language that his letter um, would suggest. Something sort of in the middle. There's a tension. It's not like you're definitely going to, but it's not going to be weird if you do, and you better be ready to do it the right way. Let me show what I mean. So first of all, down at the end of our text that was read earlier, verse 17, 1 Peter 3, 17, he says, it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. So in other words, it's a real possibility. This is a live, you know, possibility of a, 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 an actual real chance, this isn't just some theoretical thing, that you're going to have to suffer for doing God's will, and that might be God's providential will for you. On the other hand, the same paragraph says, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? You're probably not going to get harmed if you're being a good person. Most people like kind people who are selfless and love others. <laughs> Does Jesus of Nazareth have many detractors? I know people who don't believe the Bible. I don't know many people, even a lot of atheists, who don't think Jesus was pretty cool. Most people who go around doing good to people and sacrificing other people are liked by every worldview. 
If we're running around doing the ethics of the Bible, loving our neighbors, ourselves, and being kind and selfless and thoughtful and gentle and, you know, and lowly, like Jesus said, I am gentle and lowly, giving people rest and, and bringing shalom everywhere we go, peace, who's going to want to harm us? And he says in verse 14, moreover, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. And the, the, the language there, if you should suffer, doesn't sound like it's a foregone conclusion, but it does sound like it's a possibility. In fact, to get kind of just nerdy for a second, the word should suffer that I have in italics comes from one, italics comes from one Greek word, uh, paskoite, and it's in a form called the present optative, which who cares about that? But what it means is, it's kind of the idea of something may happen. It's possible it, it, the verb itself does not, the, the, the form it's in does not suggest the idea that this is definitely going to happen to you. He's sort of holding out the possibility it may or may not, but if it should, and it's for righteousness sake, you're going to be blessed. So there's a tension I think you can see. Who's going to hurt you, harm you? Probably nobody, but if you should, then verse 17, if you do, it, it could be God's will. I don't think direct will, but like providentially, he, he allows that th kind of thing to happen. So there's a, there's kind of putting that together, it's not automatic, it's not definite, but it's definitely possible. So we shouldn't be fatalistic about it, but we also shouldn't be shocked if it happens. Now I think there's two extremes, in light of that language from Peter about persecution, I think there's two extremes the people of God can go to that, are, that sort of do violence to that tension there. One is to develop a kind of what we could call a martyr complex. And I think a lot of Christians do this, especially in places where they've enjoyed a lot of cultural, cultural and social sway over the decades. They sort of get used to being top dog, and when somebody disagrees with them or something happens in the public square they don't like, even if it's just a disagreement, a little tension, like that makes me feel uncomfortable, they're like, ah, like we're being persecuted. Actually, not persecuted, because like the majority of people in Congress are evangelical Christians, and majority of the Supreme Court, or, or some sort of conservative. I don't think that's happened very often in history. Maybe early 19th century America for a few decades. But that's not common in the history of Christianity's interaction with government at all. Um, to just sort of have everybody, you know, you might have the people in power, but the masses of numbers of people, I don't know uh, about that. But let me share with you what one commentator says about uh, Peter's language here. This is a commentary on 1 Peter by Karen Job. She says, such protection from fatalistic resignation may be needed especially for those in the church who are too quick to paint themselves as martyrs and who construe every slight offense as an act of persecution. Per real persecution, people who are being persecuted, I don't think we should call persecution something where I'm just made to feel a bit uncomfortable. Somebody disagreed with me. That's not persecution. And I think we kind of do violence, no pun intended, to the people who have been persecuted by calling that persecution. We don't have a right to not be disagreed with. Jesus was disagreed with. Right? And so we shouldn't walk around with a martyr complex, especially in this country. That's just my two cents as a Christian and a historian of, of American religion. I, I just, it, doesn't, it doesn't fit the data very well. Now, that said, look at the rest of the quote. While persecution for Christ is a potentially real danger and perhaps even inevitable from time to time, it is not to be expected at every turn. It is a potential real danger. And so that's the other extreme that I think people can go to in the name of God that would do violence to Peter's language because the other extreme is to see any suffering for our faith as kind of wildly abnormal. But that shouldn't happen. Kind of these are two sides of the same coin in a sense, I guess. But in 1 Peter 4, look what he says here. Beloved, do not be surprised. Or as the old King James, I think, said, from my channeling my childhood now, think it not strange at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. All right? So we shouldn't walk around with thin skin like we're the most mistreated people in history because something happened in a pagan culture, you know, a worldly kingdom that we didn't get to dominate. Welcome to being the called out, not the majority. Welcome to holiness. That's what holiness is. You're different. You're unique. You're peculiar people, Peter says. That's what exiled life looks like. Might we expect otherwise? What Bible are we reading? You know what I'm saying? Like, when did the people of God ever... Yeah, we're on top. 
And when they had a brief moment when they were kind of on top and had their own kingdom, things go south really quickly. A few generations. We bring ourselves into exile. What are we talking about? We're our own cap, you know, captors. Jesus said anybody who sins is the captive of sin in John 8. So we've got bigger problems than what the they or the other are doing. We've got ourselves. And thankfully, the gospel addresses that. What Peter probably has in view in terms of persecution is a more social kind. If you look at chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, again, from the text that was read at the outset, he says, so that when you are slandered, be ready to defend it, so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Better to suffer for doing good. What kind of suffering is he talking about? Slander. Peter talks a lot about, you know, disparagement, slander. People don't get where you're coming from, and they belittle you or cut you down or exclude you or treat you like you know some kind of idiot or something like that there's a social or cultural kind of persecution now i will say this that is still very real right um, sticks and stones will break, break my bones but words will never hurt me not really words can hurt proverbs says so um you know so it's not the same as being flogged in a jail but it's not nothing either so, um, at any rate, how can we persevere faithfully in the face of whatever kind of suffering that living for Christ may dish out to us? How do we respond to opposition, to disparagement, even to persecution? Let me suggest to you that how we respond to those kinds of things is a function of whom and what we fear. Whom and what we fear? That's our question here. 1 Peter 3.14 says this, But even if you should suffer, should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no, he instantly toggles to fear, the question of fear. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. And when he says this, have no fear of them, or be troubled, it is a, a, an exact quotation from, again, the, the, the Greek text of Isaiah 8. Exact language. Lifted out, and Peter now is reapplying it to a different situation. Back in Isaiah 8, the context was uh, the nation of Judah was being told not to fear an alliance between their rival in the north, Israel, uh, with the Assyrian Empire, with all of their you know, weaponry and, and, and legions of soldiers. Judah's quaking in their boots. And, and Isaiah says, the Lord says through Isaiah to Judah, don't fear their fear. Well, Peter kind of tweaks it here and applies it to a different, a different, different kind of scenario. He says God's people are now facing these social adversaries within their own society. And, and his basic upshot is, I don't want you to fear the people around you. Instead, I want you to fear the Lord Christ. I love the way the NIV renders this here because I really think this is what the Greek is trying to say. You know, it's translated different ways, this phrase, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. The NIV puts it this way, revere or make holy, like fear in a sense, make, that's the one you, that really has weight to you, Christ as Lord. Who's the Lord is the question. Who's running things? Who's the boss? Who's in charge? Who's in control? And I think a lot of times when Christians start to forget the difference between the kingdom of the Lord and the kingdom of this world, whatever nation they're in, there's oftentimes a lapse in faith or trust going on as well. We've started banking on certain political visions, certain leaders, a certain you know, military power, economic power, whatever it is. There's something else that's the functional Lord of our heart besides Jesus Christ, the meek and lowly one who willingly died at Calvary and turned everything upside down. We, we've kind of turned everything right back, back to the normal conventional way, and power means power. Power isn't a cross. Power is a tank or a mutual fund or a balanced budget. That's not even a thing anymore. Forget that. Nobody believes in that anymore, apparently. Um, on it, anywhere, I mean, other than talking. Been a while, right? Hot minute? Whatever. Um, so... Whom do we trust to be ultimately in control of this world and of its future? When I'm anxious about my life in this world, who am I banking on to, to, to sort of assuage that anxiety? And who, who am I trusting? 
What am I trusting? So think about that as well as we think about how we defend the gospel. So, and that's the point we want to drive out as we, we, we uh, bring this to our final point, which is more of a conclusion, I think, in many ways. This charge that we're considering in this les lesson, in this series of lessons, is to be prepared to defend our gospel hope. Give an answer for. Be able to explain, you know, articulate to those who ask you the reason for that hope inside you. Like, what's going on? Who are you? What, what's, what are you about? Can we articulate that? It's not said in a vacuum, so we've got to think about these things. Where were these people? Well, he calls them exiles for a reason three or four times in the book. And if we're to read that and apply it to our time, these questions of what we fear, whom we fear, and whether we are exiles, they have implications for the way we visualize the whole business of being missional. What do you, what's in your head conceptually when you're thinking of talking to another person about the gospel? One of the things that needs to be in there are, are these kind of constraints on our expectations and what it involves. That's the context of 1 Peter. It's our context, really. It's anybody's. Because we all live on planet Earth in some country that honors all sorts of other lords and fears and powers and things like that. So how then, with those things in our mind now, how then should we defend the gospel. What does it say about the manner of our defense? Let me just, there's a, you know, we can talk about this for weeks. We won't. Um, we're going to toggle in the next few lessons, Lord willing, to different defenses in our time that maybe are more relevant. Um, you know, some of the intellectual problems that people have with the gospel and things like that that, that, are, that are biggies for people. Uh, and we live in a time where people are deconstructing their faith and, and masses and mass numbers um, so we'll talk some about that but for now let me ask you this question how should our being exiles in in our babylon shape the way we understand our mission so i want to suggest first of all that we don't expect babylon to be the new jerusalem let's just start there where did we get the idea that where we live is the New Jerusalem? I'll tell you where we got it. We got it from the Puritans who said that all the time. The New Jerusalem, we're the New Israel, all that kind of stuff. We're the shining city on a hill. About 45 people said that before Ronald Reagan in the 80s. The first of which I think was uh, John Winthrop, the governor of Massachusetts Bay Colony. He said it on, on the ship, Arbella, before they got off in the New World. Here's what we're coming to do. Show. We're going to have a new Israel among all these pagans. America's not the New Jerusalem. I love America. I want us to win a soccer match once in a while in the World Cup. I mean, <laughs> probably not going to happen. In uh, men's, women are way ahead on that. But um, we're not the New Jerusalem. And there, there will be times, there should be times, I think, when we will feel the angst of a Psalm 137. How can we sing the Lord's song with this going on? It's a foreign land. We should feel that. That's the, that's the heart of holiness, you know, pulsing inside of us. That's okay. This world isn't our home. We, we need to get used to that feeling. You know, we sometimes talk about the already not yet of the kingdom, and that comes from, I don't know who first put it that way, but when you read about the kingdom of Jesus in the four Gospels, it's talked about sometimes in the present tense. It's here now. Other times it's talked about as a coming thing by the same Jesus. And so theologians or somebody once said that there's a kind of already but not yet tension about the, the role of the kingdom in the lives of, of Christians in the church. Well, that's a real thing. The not yet, half of that is real. You know, a lot of times it just feels a whole lot like not yet. We're a long way. You know, your life ever feel like that? There's a, Shri and I talk about this. This is a not yet time. Other times we're like, ah, this is an already time, you know? There's a tension. So we need to be prepared to be misunderstood, to be belittled or worse, and yet still maintain that good behavior associated with the gospel of Jesus. When you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. He doesn't say strike out in the same way, fight fire with fire, be realistic instead of ideal. He doesn't use any of that kind of worldly wisdom. He says, remember Jesus 
All over this book he says that. He suffered. We'll talk about that in a second. It's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. So just keep on. Keep on following Jesus. And then secondly, in addition to not expecting Babylon to be the new Jerusalem, know that as we live in our Babylon, we have a responsibility, even in the face of opposition, if that should be the case. It won't always be, but it, it very well may be. To gently, hmm? that's what First Peter says, gently, patiently, respectfully defend the gospel. In your hearts, he says, in 1 Peter 3.15, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Just because you use the word defense, don't let your brain go to mush and think, you know, we're going to do an 11-man blitz. Defense, that means defense. We're going to have a walled city? No, let the, the original language and the whole idea here it's just the word apologia. It can mean reason or answer. You are defending, but it's in a way that looks like the cross in its manner, not just its message. You can't just get the message right and then let the manner contradict the message by being harsh rather than gentle and disrespectful rather than respectful. That person who renounces Jesus or doesn't even have a clue who Je what Jesus means and it's been so messed up with the culture war stuff, he doesn't even know what Christian is. Bless his heart. People coming by that honestly nowadays, in my opinion. There's a lot of noise out there about what Christ and Christian even means anymore. But he's still a person, she is still a person made in the image of God. They are owed our respect. In the same way that God gave us respect in Christ when he came to us when we were wandering like the prodigal. Using the wherewithal that he gave us, the breath he gave us, the energy he gave us, the resources he gave us to lead a life, to fuel a life that was far away from him. What did he do? He took us back. He came after us. He had compassion on us. And he's calling us to do the same thing. We aren't licensed to hate our world, even if it's the world that is making us feel like outcasts. Even if it's the world making us feel like exiles. I want you to look real quickly at one other group who found themselves exiled in literal Babylon and what they were told in Jeremiah 29. Did y'all look at this the other night? You did. Okay. Okay. So remember, the context is there's a false prophet saying, this is all bogus. We're not supposed to be here with the chosen people of God. This is going to be over in a, heart, in, a heart, in, a, in a hot minute. We're going back to our homeland because we're righteous. These are pagans. God says, don't listen to them. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles to whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Okay, now remember, pagan people, pagan culture, worshiping other gods who have creation stories about other gods. Right? We know about some of these stories. We, they're extant. You know, Numa Elish and Gilgamesh Epic and all this stuff. They're learning all that kind of stuff. It's surrounding them. In that world, he says, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. I don't think he's saying compromise with them, but he's also not saying become a bubble society that has nothing to do with this god-awful, you know, forgotten place. Instead, verse 7 says this, But seek the welfare. Your version may say peace. It's the, it's the Hebrew word shalom, which means full, fully-orbed thriving, what God meant the world to be, Eden. It doesn't just mean absence of war. It's, it's just full Thriving, intellectually, culturally, psychologically, physically, environmentally, all of it. That's what he says to seek for the city, for pagan Babylon, where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. In other words, you're, you're part of that country. You're, you're homeless in a sense, you're exiled, you're, you're really a citizen of, of the heavenly commonwealth, but I put you here and I want you to do your best to bring my way and my goodness to those people. P.J. Ochtemeyer writes this, cultural isolation is not to be the route taken by the Christian community. It is to live life openly in the midst of the unbelieving world and just as openly be prepared to explain the reasons for it. And we can do this if we trust the Lordship of Jesus. 
Do we really believe He's Lord? This is my Father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget. We forget, man, when the polls open, don't we? We forget when we fire off Facebook posts. It's like it's hanging on something else or someone else. It's His world. Moreover, as we seek to give an answer to our world for the gospel hope within us, we must trust the approach of Jesus Himself. After all, it's His gospel. His gospel, we're being called to defend. What's His approach? The very next verse. For Christ also suffered once for sins. 1 Peter 3.18 The righteous suffering for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Christ came into a world of unrighteousness, suffered at the hands of those unrighteous, and yet willingly absorbed all of that unrighteousness. Why? That He might bring us to God. And that's what we're called to do. Bring people to God. Not make them feel bad because they made us feel bad. Right? Not recapture American history. Or whatever. The way it was when I was a kid. Whatever golden age we've imagined it to be. You know, when a lot of us were kids, some of us in this audience, a lot of people in America were not even allowed to vote in those glory days. There's never, the, glory, the good old days are going to be new creation. That's the good old days. <laughs> it's the good new days. That's what we need to be talking about. And to the extent that we live like Jesus, we're his kingdom now. We're the new creation now, at least a glimpse of that for the future that's coming. Let's believe in that. And let not, let's not confuse the kingdom of God with the kingdoms of this earth. And let's trust the lordship of the one who's bringing it about. He's writing the story, and we know where it goes. We know, we know the conclusion. Amen? Amen? All right. Thank you for your attention today. Sorry I've gone long. Um, but I did. Sorry. <laughs> I, I, say about it. I just did. It's, 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 I can't get it back. Well, look, it's 1110. Um, anyway, um, we're going to uh, sing a song in a minute that Kevin's going to lead us in. And um, if, if in any way you are subject to the Lord's invitation, we stand ready to help you come to him. Uh, in all the ways we understand the Bible to teach it. We can talk about that, we can study it, but let's all right now stand and sing.